So many of you want Evan Ingram to be a thing. You so desperately want Evan Ingram, of all people, to be a thing in the National Football League. And I don't understand it. What is the fascination with Evan Ingram? 29.5% college dominator. Very good. 86th percentile. Athletic. Yes. Understood. 123.9, 87th percentile spark X score. 91st percentile catch radius. 125.5 burst score. Runs a 4-4-2 at 234 pounds. That's a 120.4, 96th percentile height adjusted speed score. What's not to like about Evan Ingram? Evan Ingram does not have a position in the NFL. That's the problem. And that's a huge problem. Guys like Evan Ingram lack successful comps in the NFL. He does comp to Niles Paul, and I like Niles Paul. I want Niles Paul to be a thing. I don't see much of a difference between Niles Paul and Evan Ingram. But I'm also not trading a first-round dynasty rookie draft pick for Niles Paul! Succeeding as the tweener prototype in the NFL is the ultimate low-probability endeavor for a draft prospect. Evan Ingram simply isn't big enough to play tight end full-time at the NFL level. And if you can't play the tight end position full-time, it's incredibly difficult to achieve tight end one status in fantasy. And that's what it's all about. We're just trying to find the tight ends that one day can achieve tight end one status. And for Evan Ingram, because he's only 235 pounds, it's highly improbable. We've seen this movie over and over and over and over again. Remember Tim Wright? Tim Wright was a thing that people wanted to happen. Before him, it was Doran Dickerson, super athletic tweener that people wanted to happen desperately. For some reason, the tweener prototype inspires the imagination without the realism. Because in reality, guys like Evan Ingram have no successful comps at the NFL level. Now, I understand Jordan Reed became a thing. I get it. Jordan Reed. That's right. Jordan Reed is good, and Jordan Reed was a tweener coming out of Florida. I can't dispute that. And you will get a Jordan Reed every 10 years. So once a decade tight end in Jordan Reed, the other tight ends in the top five every year look a lot more like Rob Gronkowski and Travis Kelsey than they do Jordan Reed. This is the tyranny of outliers. Chasing outliers does us a disservice. The presence of outliers in the NFL is the cause of some of the most misguided NFL draft analysis. When I saw Evan Ingram declare for the NFL draft, his entire pre-draft process in Dynasty Leagues played itself out instantly in my mind. I saw everything happen before it happened. He was productive, uber-athletic, he inspires the imagination and allows fantasy gamers to untether themselves from reality. Okay, so so he's very unlikely to be Jordan Reed, but maybe we can convert him to wide receiver. Yes, yes. Matt Kelly, go to playerprofiler.com. Switch Evan Ingram's position to wide receiver. Then tell me who the comparables are. No, I will not do that because he's not going to play wide receiver at the NFL level. He lacks the spatial nuance to play wide receiver. That's why his coaches, scouts, his agent, and NFL player personnel executives have encouraged Evan Ingram to declare for the NFL draft as a tight end. That's why when he attended the NFL scouting combine, he self-identified as a tight end, not a receiver. Because football people know that guys like Evan Ingram have no successful comps. But what fantasy footballers like to do is 
practice confirmation bias. Instead of looking at the data and letting the data tell you the story about Evan Ingram and his range of outcomes in the NFL, what are his probabilities of success? Instead, you identify the players you like first, and then you go out hunting data to confirm your biases. This is when the player wags the data. And specifically with Evan Ingram, size-adjusted athleticism trumping all in the evaluation. And we're all susceptible to it. It's not just fantasy football analysts. It's members of the mainstream sports media. It's scouts. We're all susceptible to coming across a player that we like based on film study or just a single wow factor catch. And then we find ourselves scouring the earth for reasons to like that player. And in Evan Ingram, I've seen it more than any other this season. So many hypotheticals for how Evan Ingram could become a big-time NFL playmaker. One of the elite fantasy producers at either the wide receiver or tight end position. I've heard he can play wide receiver because he's dropping weight. That's the latest story that I'm being told. But he has no chance in the NFL if he converts to wide receiver. Zero. Why would he be dropping weight in the first place? Isn't that a red flag in and of itself? Since when do you want to invest in the player that's trying to drop weight? That's never, ever, ever a good sign in any context. Evan Ingram could be a successful NFL player, and it's going to be at the tight end position. It won't be at the wide receiver position. Because at least at the tight end position, there are some successful comps. I believe that if he had not got injured, Niles Paul would have been a successful tight end. We've seen Jordan Reed. And there have been others that have been productive in the past under 240 pounds. It's just rare. It's not impossible. It would be impossible for Evan Ingram to drop enough weight to become a wide receiver. It's just not possible. He'll never have the spatial nuance that is required of the wide receiver. He's just too massive to play the position. And it's intuitive. He can't run routes the way that Doug Baldwin can run routes. He's not nimble enough, and he never will be. You can say the same thing for Kelvin Benjamin. I think Kelvin Benjamin should have converted to tight end because he'll never be nimble enough to run precise routes and become an efficient wide receiver at the NFL level. It's not in his range of outcomes. He should have converted to tight end many years ago. He never did, and that has doomed him to perennial, inefficient wide receiver play. And wide receivers don't have to switch to tight end to gain relevance. Sometimes they switch to running back. Shorter receivers with that same Evan Ingram BMI, that girth, often switch to running back. Ty Montgomery, CJ Proceis. If they're under six feet tall, they often switch to running back. And those super high BMI wide receivers that are, are taller than six foot typically convert to tight end as we saw with Niles Paul. So tight end is the best of bad choices for Evan Ingram. That's why I don't understand the fascination. I think Evan Ingram is a novelty. I don't think he's a lock to find a role in the NFL. Far from it. Remember Ed Dixon? Ed Dixon looked like Kelvin Benjamin when he was at Oregon. Looked like a pumped up wide receiver. And he was much more productive than Evan Ingram. Ed Dixon posted a 35.3% dominator rating at Oregon. That was more than five percentage points higher than Evan Ingram at Mississippi. Ed Dixon had a case for converting to wide receiver if he's going to be that prolific and productive in college. Evan Ingram doesn't even have that in his favor. Evan Ingram doesn't even have a 90th percentile college dominator among tight ends. Evan Ingram's college dominator among wide receivers would be below the 50th percentile. 
And I remember when the narrative was, well, Ed Dixon could play wide receiver. He just needs to lose weight. Ed Dixon couldn't make it as a tight end. You think Ed Dixon was going to be a successful NFL wide receiver? <laughs> and I love this comp that we have, Evan Ingram to Niles Paul. It's a very close comparable. Niles Paul played wide receiver at Nebraska and then switched to tight end because he was too big to play wide receiver. He was a tweener. This is that tweener purgatory that so many draft prospects find themselves trapped in. But why is no one begging Niles Paul to switch to wide receiver? I didn't hear that. I know why. Because he's not a rookie. That's why. Niles Paul no longer has the NFL draft spotlight washing out everyone's rational judgment. Evan Ingram's in the NFL draft. So we're obliged to seek out his best case scenario and weave a fairy tale for children about how Evan Ingram could become the first player of his kind to break the tweener curse by moving to wide receiver. And at wide receiver, he could be a full-time starter, a big-time playmaker, an every-week fantasy football stud. Yeah. Wide receiver Evan Ingram. <laughs> yeah, right. It's it sounds so foolish as the words are tumbling from my lips because it's foolish. Why this obsession to chasing players without comps? It's possible that Evan Ingram is a more athletic Jordan Reed. I admit it's possible. That's the only way I'm going to give a shit about Evan Ingram five years from now. What are the odds of that actually happening? Immeasurably small. We want guys with building block traits that compare favorably to difference-making playmakers in the NFL today. And that's not what Evan Ingram is. The Evan Ingram touts are trying to innovate. They're fantasizing about a revolutionary new position that doesn't exist in the NFL that they think Evan Ingram will fit perfectly into. Just use your imagination. They haven't invented the position yet, but it's out there. Whoa! Problem is, most revolutions fail. And I prefer to chase the players with successful archetypes in the NFL, with traits and qualities that have been well-documented to translate at the NFL level. So I won't be drafting Evan Ingram. And if I was an NFL general manager, I would not be drafting Evan Ingram either. What is the point? If I'm a team that needs a tight end, I'm going to draft a prototypical tight end with size to block in line and play on an every down basis. Have you ever wished you could be an NFL general manager? Well, if that thought has ever crossed your mind, I have a tip for you. Go to realitysportsonline.com because it was created by former NFL front office personnel. They have a free agency auction room, which mimics NFL free agency, enabling fantasy owners to negotiate and sign the NFL's top talent to single or multi-year contracts. They have franchise tags and multi-team trades, salary cap functionality. It's my new favorite site for administering dynasty leagues. So test your general manager skills for free with a 14-day free trial at realitysportsonline.com. Use the promo code UNDERWORLD to receive 10% off your team or league today. I love Reality Sports Online. They provide the sophistication without the complexity. And today I'm going to talk to J.J. Zacharyson from Number Fire. I'm going to ask him about Evan Ingram. We'll do a contrived dichotomy. Evan Ingram versus Bucky Hodges. We'll see what J.J. has to say about those two prospects and many more. Go follow him at Late Round Quarterback on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program. JJ Zacharyson! 
He's going for Evan Silva's show record. Long way to go, JJ. Talk to me. I, uh, you need to send me more invites, Matt. That's that. This is not my fault. We were just talking about Kenny Britt and how he's the one who signed the contract to go to Cleveland, and that puts a damper on his production potential. Well, this is the opposite of Kenny Britt. I'm always willing, Matt. This yes. is on you. Yes, Kenny Britt willingly went to Cleveland. Broke my heart. You broke my heart, Kenny! You broke my heart. Aaron Nagler broke a lot of hearts in Fantasyland with his mean words on Twitter. Aw, Aaron Nagler was mean to some fantasy people and they got real upset. He said that it was cute when fantasy analysts think they know what they're talking about when evaluating NFL players. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. And then I came on my show and I took Aaron Nagler's side <laughs> because it's true. I mean, it's... <laughs> Most fantasy analysts are hacks, but do you agree with Aaron Nagler like I do, or were you angry? I mean, okay, so I, I know Aaron. I worked with him a little bit as well. He's he's a he's a good guy. It was just a bad tweet. I think he's a really bad guy. I think he's evil after that tweet. That that hurt my feelings so much. That tweet. <laughs> it was just. It was a dagger from behind. I mean, he's also a coward because he stabbed me in the back on social media. Say it to my face, Aaron! Say that to my face! <laughs> I think... Say it to my face! Stab me in the back on Twitter. Damn him. What a bad guy. Give me his address. The bottom line, the bottom line with what he said and how I feel about it is that all analysts are bad. <laughs> How's that? Is that yeah, fair? Yeah. Well, that was also my analysis. My analysis was fantasy analysts are generally hacks. Sports writers are generally hacks. And in particular, NFL general managers are almost all hacks. No one is actually good at, at this. No. Like no one's no one's good at it. So that's fine that he says that. It's just there's an opposite side to this, which is his group, if you will, the beat writers or the guys who write for team blogs or team websites like they're bad too everyone's bad let me be clear while i agree with him his group is worse his click is even less data driven than our click sure i agree i i i, I will plead the fifth though on that point i'm gonna be politically correct that we are more data driven than <laughs> no 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 the, the the better or worse sports blogger x or beat reporter x the better or worse point. Uh, we are way more data driven, yeah. and you know where you know where I stand with data, and right. I'm going to side with the data driven people. So yes. by definition, we're better at this than Aaron Nagler and his crew. I mean, we are the Anchorman crew. Aaron Nagler in this scenario, in this analogy, is Vince Vaughn and his station. I'll 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 say that I think that if you took you know fifty semi-random you know you don't want completely random fantasy analysts against 50 random beat writers or guys who cover sites that the fantasy analysts are going to have a more comprehensive view and, and smarter view in my opinion on the nfl there you said it that felt good right that felt, felt good, good. Felt good. <laughs> that felt good that felt good yeah shit so i came on your pod last week you came on my pod this week this is just very cute it's yes. so cute, according to Aaron Nagler. What we're doing is just so cute here. <laughs> Analyzing football players using data and information you can actually measure to come up with our conclusions. Oh, that's no one ever does that, except, I don't know, scientists. Right. Except literally everyone. Anyone that wants to be accurate, Nagler. So on your show, 
We talked about how athleticism sometimes wags the dog with a handful of prospects every single draft season where, especially the wide receivers, you have analysts focusing more on athleticism than production. See Kevin White, see Brashad Perriman, and even Evan Ingram this year, Curtis Samuel this year, you're seeing it. You're seeing these reverse-engineered prospect evaluations where they start with the speed and burst or they start with the size adjusted athleticism and then they backward engineer a scouting report or an opinion about a player that's largely based on their athleticism first and their production second i disagree with that so for example the tweener prototype curtis samuel tweener we're not sure is he a running back is he a wide receiver evan ingram is he a tight end is he a wide receiver the tweener prototype is wrought with failure and the idea that you would draft a tweener in the first round of a dynasty rookie draft is madness to me i mean maybe with curtis samuel maybe with curtis samuel he's just so explosive and he has a chance to be theo riddick 2.0 that you could justify it but i don't get it with evan ingram so based on our conversation that we had on your podcast how do you stack rank the priorities when you're evaluating specifically wide receivers production versus athleticism and, and have you seen a player this year that you believe is getting overhyped based on athleticism that is camouflaging a lack of production yeah i mean i think you mentioned two really good examples with with ingram and and samuel uh you know ingram specifically um you know when you look at the late first round of a rookie draft, it's very difficult for me just from a pure game theory standpoint to back drafting a tight end. Right. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult to get behind something like that. Uh, and the other thing, when I hear game theory in this context, what I translate that into is your draft pick is essentially helping your competitors by pushing players in the more coveted positions out to your competitors. Yeah, I think it's a combination of that and it's a combination of opportunity cost where you know, you're know you not able to get whoever you would be drafting in the late first round in a rookie draft. Now, to be fair, uh, you know, it's not like the late first round has these slam dunk prospects this season, this, this season especially. So you can at least understand it to a degree with Ingram but uh, or, or tight end in general. But at the same time, tight ends don't matter in fantasy football. Not only that, but you know there are plenty of busts that we've seen in recent history no. at the t- at the tight end Stop position. Stop it! Despite yeah, exactly, despite the fact that that they had these types of profiles. I mean, Max Williams comes to mind. Uh, Austin Sperrin Jenkins, Jason Jason Morrow though is a production guy too. I mean, the, the, it's a it's a it's a tough position to evaluate because you can use the position in so many different ways, and I think that's a huge reason why there's such a transition and 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 a lag when guys go from college to the pros at that position. But with Curtis Samuel, you know, I I think the way that I kind of view Curtis Samuel is I think that he's going to be a much better real football asset than fantasy football asset. Um, and, and I think that you know. A player like that, you need to feel good about his landing spot. You need, you know, if he's going to be a lower A dot guy, you need a high volume offense. And that's generally what you're going to get with a guy like Curtis Samuel. If he if he goes the route of a Golden Tate, let's say, and he becomes more of that, then you need a Detroit Lions type offense. That's But if he's not going to be that, if he's going to be more of a... I'll tell you right now, he's not going to be that. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree. Um, but again, you mentioned theoretic. It's another example of, of 
I think that's the path. I think that if he takes that path and he lands with the right team, like you saw with Ty Montgomery, the Ty Montgomery Theo Riddick career path is his best shot at high end fantasy production. It could be, you know, and, and I think a lot of people might look back at like that Percy Harvin year in 2011 and say maybe he could do. So, but again, that was somewhat of an outlier. And Percy Harvin was also literally the only offensive weapon that they had in that offense. So I'm not I'm not really buying into something like that either. And and I think, you know, we've seen players like this, maybe not to his athletic profile degree necessarily, but we've seen players come out where they they get a lot more hyped than they should. And, and look, uh, 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 from a from a how he will be used at the NFL level standpoint, you know, if 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 some people think that he's going to be more of a receiver than running back. I mean, there are many, many examples out there to show us that that sucks in fantasy football. Tavon Austin being an example of that. It's it's just not something that you really should be that attractive to. So bottom line for me with Curtis Samuel is I'm, I need him to be in a good situation for me to really care about him in fantasy. Um, and, and I think that he's going to be a much better real football player because he can create those mismatches and do those things for offenses than a fantasy football player. So you don't like Curtis Samuel. You don't want to take a tight end. Your Twitter handle, at late round quarterback, you're not taking a quarterback in that spot. Although I would argue Patrick Mahomes wouldn't be a terrible pick there. What are you doing with your late first rounders and dynasty drafts? Just trying everything you can do, going to the mattresses to try to trade that pick? Yeah. 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 That's, just, that's, that's it. That's it. Just say that. Just say that. Just say that. Yeah. This is it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. I've asked a bunch of people this question because it's interesting. It's one of my interesting canned questions of the year. Should Dalvin Cook have faked an injury before the combine like Corey Davis did? <laughs> Look, Dalvin Dalvin Cook is like the book smart kid who did poorly on his SATs, and he's just hoping that there's a school out there that doesn't weigh the SAT scores as heavily as his GPA, right? Right. Like that, that's Dalvin cook in a nutshell. Um, and that could happen. You know, there's going to be teams out there that aren't going to weigh these, these workout, uh, numbers very strongly or as strongly as other teams. Um, but I think that, you know, I, I, at least after he has, you know, after, after he starts producing at the NFL level, at least he has something to point back at and say, I told you, I told you. Yeah. Mike Gillisley's that guy. Now Mike Gillisley has similar metrics to Dalvin cook. And he just signed a fairly lucrative deal for a running back with the New England Patriots. And the Buffalo Bills have decided not to match. They're just going to ride with LaShawn McCoy and Jonathan Williams. If anything happens to LaShawn McCoy, Jonathan Williams just became interesting. But I'll tell you what's going to happen with Dalvin Cook. Dalvin Cook didn't need to go to the Combine. Whether he went to the Combine, whether he didn't go to the Combine, didn't matter. Dalvin Cook is going to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They've wanted him for years. He wants to stay near home. They need a running back more than almost any team in this entire draft. And if I'm Dalvin Cook, I'm thrilled with that landing spot because you become one of the focal points of an ascending offense. You have a quarterback going into his third year with pretty much every accolade you could ever ask for, and he's been improving and was one of the league's high-volume deep passers last year who just acquired Deshaun Jackson to go with Mike Evans. This is an offense that you want to be a part of. You want to be a cog in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers machine. I'll break that news right now.
Dalvin Cook is going to be drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and everyone is going to be happy. Now, Christian McCaffrey, is he a proper NFL workhorse? Does that matter? And does his landing spot matter very much? Um, I don't think he can be a workhorse because he's white. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but seriously, hey, Rex Burkhead had a workhorse week 17. He sure did. He sure did. He crushed that, crushed that Ravens defense. He sure did. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I don't think that it matters that much, uh, with McCaffrey. Uh, I, you know, there's like, let's say that he gets, or he, he averages through his career, through his prime years of his career, 150 carries and 70 plus targets a season, right? That, that's a very arbitrary number and look but I'm, I'm looking at you're breaking that news no you're breaking that news that's what he's going to average yeah sure um but if you said that that was what christian mccaffrey would be getting year in year in year out i think a lot of people might be somewhat hesitant because they they think of running backs in terms of how many carries they're getting and if if they are indeed a workhorse i like that i like those numbers i think that i think that it's a, a, a an accurate way to look at christian mccaffrey in the at the nfl level i mean obviously team dependent but a 150 carry maybe 130 carry 70 plus target season but the problem is that um if you look at running backs who have done that over the last six years 18 running backs have seen that uh the only guy that scored under 220 ppr points that hit those numbers was ray rice during that crazy inefficient year that they had in baltimore it was like him and bernard pierce they were they were just dreadful back in 2013. But then even if you filter that to 100 carries and 70 targets, you're basically looking at, you know, the Charles Sims, the Duke Johnsons from a, from a fantasy standpoint. Uh, and those are reliable PPR RB2 numbers. But then, you know, if you want from a real football perspective, you can look at like net expected points or expected points model that we have at number fire uh, for every target that a running back gets uh, compared to a rush. They're averaging 0.13 more expected points per target than rush as a real point. So obviously we know, and that's only been, that, that discrepancy has only gotten larger and larger. We know that throwing the ball to running backs is far more efficient than running the ball with a running back. That doesn't mean running backs are obsolete, but we know that it's a more important thing. And it's exaggerated on teams with bad offensive lines. Yeah, right, right. Which is, yeah, to, yeah, to your point, um, you know, whether I think landing spot matters. I mean, sure, I would like Christian McCaffrey on like the Colts or something where he's going to catch, you know, potentially break records catching the football as a running back. But um, I don't think it is as big of a deal for him than a Leonard Fournette. Yeah, if Dante Foreman goes to a team with a bad offensive line, it's a death sentence. Yeah, I agree. Christian McCaffrey can go anywhere and it won't be a death sentence. I agree. I agree. Did Ezekiel Elliott change the running back position, the entire prospect valuation paradigm? Because now I'm seeing potentially four running backs in the first round, four running backs in the first round. Hold on, hold on. The NFL is drafting four running backs in the first round. I've I've talked about this now, I think, on like three of the four guest podcasts that I've had on, on my show. And Everyone's kind of given a different answer. You had Matt Williamson, an ex-scout, give the answer that, oh, the running back class is just better this year, which I get. That that's a that's a I, I would I would think that he would come he would give that kind of answer. Then Evan Silva Matt Williamson, you listen to the show, you're wrong. <laughs> wow. And then Evan Silva gave the answer that he doesn't think GMs are that stupid, basically. You know, it's it's they're they're not going to look at a very unique situation, which was Dallas, and then use that as an example as to why they should get these running backs early. Typical Evan Silva carrying water for the scouting industrial complex of the NFL. 
I, I, I think, you know, I think that there is a sentiment across some front offices where they don't truly know the value of a running back. I, 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 and I don't think that it's because they're stupid per se, because I think that there are, there are at least reasons for teams to think that they need to start to kind of change the course a little bit and, and get these bigger bodied guys. For instance, Matt Williamson had a great point in that, that, you know, defenses continue to evolve and he thinks that we're going to just continue to see more and more dime packages out there. Right. And if that's the case, one way that you can really combat that is with big bodied running backs who can just run them over, or that's the way that these front offices might think. So there's at least some sense of logic as to why they would want these running backs. I disagree with that logic. I still think that it's stupid because we know that passing is so much more efficient in general and that running backs have shown to be replaceable overall. But so, so to, to, to your, to your uh, question about Ezekiel Elliott, I think that it has changed because people are looking at the NFL just generally a little bit differently. Maybe it's not precisely because of Ezekiel Elliott, but I think that it had some it's it's having some sort of effect. But I think there are a lot of teams like Evan Silva mentioned that understand positional value and they view the running back position as largely dispendable because sadly it is. In a lot of cases, you have a lot of free agent running backs right now who you would think would have full-time jobs in the NFL, but that's not happening. So if we assume that no running back should be drafted in the first round on principle, and we know this is a weak wide receiver class, it's a weak quarterback class, strong tight end class, are there any true first round talents in this entire draft on the offensive side of the football on the offensive side. I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm not very excited about it. Uh, I, I think that you could make, you could, you could make a case for a McCaffrey just because of the versatility that he, that he does show not just as a, a, a running back. Um, but again, you have question marks around all these guys, McCaffrey's question mark. Can he be an every down guy? Can, is, is he worthwhile enough can he handle 100 plus carries? Uh, Leonard Fournette, can he p- pass block and catch? You know, Dalvin Cook runs like a dad, apparently. Uh, Joe Mixon has the off the field stuff, as does Dalvin Cook. Uh, Corey Davis might end up being more of, you know, uh, an Eric De- Decker type and not necessarily the, 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 the X that, that people want out of that first round pick. So, I, and, and Mike Williams, obviously, he can't separate. John Ross has injury issues in a small sample size. I mean, there's, there's so many red flags with all of these players that, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of these guys, you just, it's not as worth looking uh, the offensive way. Now, with that being said, there's a big difference in this, in this class, I think, between top tier talent and depth, because I think that there is a lot of just, just players that that can fill these, you know, you know, 53 man roster. Uh, they, they need to just get depth. They need to just throw guys out there. Maybe some wide receiver threes and this uh, that and from a fantasy perspective, uh, some running backs that that can that can come in and and be backups to to the Le'Veon Bell types of the world. Um, but at the same time, specifically with running backs, you made the point. The opportunity out there right now, Matt, is not nearly as good I think than what consensus might think I tweeted about this like a week ago got some flack for it but I I don't see these wide open situations as some do with the running back position and and you know even even like a you know I I mentioned like Minnesota because Joe Mixon was being tied to Minnesota at one point even Minnesota 
you know, you might say, well, Latavius Murray sucks. I know Latavius Murray sucks. I, I don't think Latavius Murray is good, but that doesn't matter because the coaching staff thinks that he's okay or, or well enough to sign him to a decent sized one year contract this season where he's going to see touches. So their immediate impact at this running back class, I don't think is going to be that great. And then you just pile on top that there isn't that top tier talent. And it just adds to the fact that from a real and fantasy standpoint, this class just sucks. From a real football standpoint, look across the players in this draft class, it's beyond underwhelming. It's borderline hideous. Mm -hmm. And this is the great fraud that the NFL draft media has perpetrated on our industry is the lie that this is an exciting draft class. The lie that this is an above average draft class in terms of average talent, median talent, that this is a draft class where you want picks. No, you don't. No, you don't want picks in this draft class. If you're in a dynasty league, trade your picks. Yeah. Here's my take on this draft class. You have one five-star prospect in Miles Garrett. I mean, Miles Garrett is incredible. Miles Garrett could be immediately, as a rookie, one of the best defenders in the league. He's the best prospect I've seen in my entire time in this business. Which is a couple years. <laughs> but that's why Corey Davis deserves to be drafted in the first round, because he's the best wide receiver in an overall weak draft class. So he deserves to be a first round pick. Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in a weak draft class. He deserves to be drafted in the first round. David Njoku and OJ Howard deserve to be drafted in the first round because those are legitimate high end prospects in their position groups. One of the few that you can say across all players at this position in the NFL when you watch an O.J. Howard come into the league or you see a David Njoku come into the league, he immediately is in the upper percentile across most of these prospect evaluation methodologies that we have. So we've seen very few prospect profiles that are of the quality that you have with David Njoku and O.J. Howard, so they should be first-round picks. Other than that, I would not be drafting any of these players in the first round if I were an NFL GM. If I were the GM of the Browns, for example, I would be doing exactly what they're doing. Everything the Browns are doing is perfect. Signing Kenny Britt, just perfect. Everything they're doing. I just love everything they're doing. Picking up part of Brock Osweiler's contract in order to get a second-round pick. Genius. Just, just so smart. And I also believe that this is the perfect year to tank because Miles Garrett is so much better than the next prospect on the board. So the differential between Miles Garrett's prospect profile and the next prospect on the board across all positions, that gap is so wide. It's such a huge differential that the Cleveland Browns actually picked the perfect year to tank. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree. I mean, obviously, if you have a, a five star quarterback of sorts, then that's an ideal year to do it. I, you know, I'm not pinpointing you know, like like Andrew Luck's value to the league, even though I don't even think Andrew Luck is is as good of a quarterback as the rest of of America thinks. Um, Andrew Luck, his value to a team is just inherently greater than a Miles Garrett will have. Right. But but even still facts only. You're getting a position. See, this is the thing. I, I, I can't fault teams who pick players who are going to either enhance the pass or stop the pass, right? Because that is that is the bottom line, what you need to do in today's league. So if you get an edge, if you get a five, if you get a if you get a Miles Garrett in this draft, 
that's it. You're, you're getting a position of need. You know, my, that, that's why I'm not going to be as uh, upset as I probably would because I don't think he's a great prospect at a team at least taking a chance on a guy. Like, I, I don't believe him to be a first round pick. I don't think he's a top, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think he's a top wide receiver in the class, but like a Mike Williams, right? At least the team is getting the position correct, right? At least the team is getting a position that will help an offense. And this is why I could rant for this for hours. I'm actually going to do a, a solo show on it next week on why best player available is the dumbest thing on earth. Where can we find your podcast? Uh, you can search number fire NFL podcasts on iTunes, but you know, th- this is why best player available is so stupid because inherently the word best is subjective and you have to look at team need in some way. If you're saying take the best player available, what you're basically saying is value of a replacement player, right? Well, if that's the case, then why isn't the best kicker being drafted in the first round? It's because we're inherently looking at position and positional value. So that's why I can't be that upset if a team goes after a wide receiver, quarterback, edge rusher, or corner, because those are the positions that matter the most to the NFL today. So you're not drafting either Dante Foreman or Jeremy McNichols in the first round. That's clear. That's that's clear. But if you were picking one of those for your fantasy team, if you're in a dynasty league and a rookie draft, let's say it's the end of the first round, more likely second round, you pick in Dante Foreman, you pick in Jeremy McNichols. You know, I, I, I think that there's an easy chance for Foreman to outperform McNichols, like we said earlier, if he does fall to the right spot. With that being said, I thought that the perfect spot for him would have been, I mean, for a lot of backs, but would have been Oakland. Oakland, bye-bye. But yeah. You don't want to go to Oakland now because the running back they have in the backfield specializes in run through a motherfucker's face. <laughs> right, right, right. It also, it also kind of scares me about their decision making with the running back position. So like, I don't know if, if it, maybe, maybe we were overrating the Oakland situation in the first place, but I, I like McNichols more as a prospect. Um, like I said, I don't mind Foreman. I think he can thrive in the right spot. Um, but I, I think that if, you know, the other thing too, Foreman, I think, I think a lot of folks are only looking upside with Foreman, but like, let's, let's not, you know, he could be like Andre Williams, light yes you know like he could yes he could he could end up being an andre williams type whereas i think with jeremy mcnichols he's above average at at everything slash slash elite at some i mean his market share numbers are out of control jeremy mcnichols he's so good yeah and and so so and you you have a history of a couple backs recently coming out of the school uh that have produced at the nfl level and doug martin and jaje um you know i i think the bottom line with with Foreign, or with uh, with Foreman versus McNichols is people are looking strictly at upside and they're they're downgrading or, or downplaying the effect that receiving has for a running back's future and how he translates to the NFL level. It's just what we were saying in real life and in fantasy football, which are largely PPR leagues. You want the player that catches passes. He has a lot more outs at the next level. Yeah. Let's say that Dante Foreman goes to a team that we think has a good offensive line and then a bunch of their offensive linemen get hurt, well, then what happens? Well, then Dante Foreman underwhelms and misses expectations because he doesn't have any other way to produce outside running off tackle. Well, Jeremy McNichols can produce in lots of different ways. You can deploy him all over the football field as a satellite back or as the primary ball carrier, which he can do at 5'9", 214, that's a 31.6 BMI. That's 82nd percentile BMI. So Jeremy McNichols absolutely has the bulk 
to be a primary ball carrier and the receiving skills to be a satellite back. You can parachute Jeremy McNichols onto any team in the NFL and he will produce. I can't say that at all about Dante Mm -hmm. Foreman. So I think they have similar ceilings, but one has a much lower floor. That's why I think it's pretty clear you'd want Jeremy McNichols over Dante Foreman. Also, Dante Foreman, much smaller sample size. You're falling into a sample size trap with Dante Foreman. 11 games at Texas where he was getting more than 30 carries, whereas Jeremy McNichols has over 20 total touchdowns and back-to-back seasons? Come on. You're setting yourself up to get fooled by randomness with Dante Foreman. Now, what about the wide receivers? Let's do another contrived dichotomy. Contrived dichotomy. Chris Godwin or Zay Jones? Yeah, I, I like Godwin more here. I'm just so surprised, man. Like, I, I'm surprised that you don't like Zay Jones. I shouldn't say that you should be in love with the guy, but I think that he has enough of a production profile to at least not have this push against him the way that you do. So I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm throwing it out there just because I want to say that I do like Godwin more, and I'm not just saying that to please you because I'm on your show. But I do like Godwin more. Um, I think with Zay Jones, the fear for me, I'm not that concerned about his efficiency. Um, the, 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 efficient, the efficiency part that I am concerned about is his, his touchdown production and his touchdown market share. Like how the hell do you have 158 catches and only score eight times, right? Like that, that to me is scary, but I also know the way that they used him. That is a stinging indictment against American conference defensive backs that your touchdown rate is so abysmal. I think that there's, there's, you know, you can make the case that the way that they used him there, you know, it was a very, he, he didn't stretch the field as much as, as what he's going. I mean, he, the, the way that he plays. Let me stop you. Let me stop you. Let me just stop you. Let me just stop. The <laughs> rationalization for players that we use when they're quote unquote misused or used in a way that we don't think is optimizing their skill set. That is typically reserved for the Julio Jones players who play in an offense that is conservative and they don't throw the ball as much as we would like so that he could showcase his ability because he's on Alabama. The same argument was true and resonated with Michael Thomas last year because he's playing on a team with lots of offensive weapons and they can't feature him. So that's where the rationalization for the usage rings true. You can't rationalize away the way a player was used when he was the number one wide receiver on East fucking Carolina. Okay? That doesn't count because he's by far and away the best player on offense in that case. Complaining about how he's used rings hollow. But but I think but what I'm trying to say, though, is he was used the way he was used at ECU for whatever reason, right? But what my, my main point is that he, I, he's not going to be used that way at the NFL level. He's not. Bye. But again, he doesn't have that high of a ceiling from college to pro, right? So like, I, I'm not like in love with the dude from a from a from a fantasy standpoint. <laughs> I'm not in the ceiling for Zay Jones. Zay Jones' ceiling is very low. I was, just, I was trying to get as low in my chair as I possibly could to illustrate the lowness of a player with a 10.7 yards per reception as a starter for four seasons. Yet, even as a starter for four seasons, no one knew his name until his senior year. Well, Juju Smith-Schuster will never have a senior year. The best players don't have senior years to compare against Zay Jones' blockbuster senior year. I discount senior years heavily. 
Yeah. Because I compare apples to apples. You can't compare apples to apples when you're comparing Zay Jones as a senior to Juju Smith-Schuster as a junior or a sophomore. That's unfair. That's why I'd much rather have a Chris Godwin or a Juju Smith-Schuster, players that produced at a high level as sophomores and juniors and didn't need to wait for that senior year crutch. Sure. To be fair, though, his, Zay's junior year, at least he had a, a slightly better touchdown rate. It was still bad. This is the elaborate rationalization program that gets installed on the behalf of players. But the bottom line is, to answer the question that I gave you, you said Chris Godwin. Yeah, it's Godwin. You didn't even say Zay Jones. But I just gave you my reasoning for why I'm not as enthusiastic about Zay Jones because it's true. You go to Zay Jones' profile on playerprofiler.com. How is this a player that Matt Kelly doesn't like? This is absolutely a player Matt Kelly's going to have in his top 10. How could he not? Go to playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings and you look at the top 10 wide receivers. Oh, 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 what? Wait, what? Wait, there's no Zay Jones in the top 10? How is this possible? This can't be possible. Zay Jones. Jones has a 10 27 92nd percentile catch radius. He's at the 79th percentile or above across all workout metrics and broke the record for receptions in a season. How could he not be in the top 10? And I just gave you the reason. It's a very, very fair reason, but I'm also putting this in the context of what we just talked about with this class just being trash, right? Like, like I, I get if you're chasing ceiling, he might not have that. Uh, but I also think that he can fit in plenty of, of of NFL offenses and still produce somewhat. Well, let's put that on the scroll. We're going to break that one. Let's break that news. J.J. Zacharyson on the Roto Underworld Radio Show. He'll produce somewhat. In the right situation, he'll produce somewhat. That's scroll-worthy. I mean, you're breaking news right here. This is exciting. My 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 main point, though, is I am somewhat... I, I, you, you've explained yourself, but I'm. St- I, it was still shocking to have the vendetta that you do against Zay Jones. I don't have a vendetta. I just don't hype every player like so sure. many draft analysts are addicted to. It's like a drug. They're addicted to hyping players because it feels good. You get applause from everyone that's a fan of that player from college and everyone that hopes that player lands on their team because he looks above average. Well, if you want applause, hype every player. If you want to be liked, if you want to be right, you actually should criticize every player and outright dismiss most of them because the vast majority will not be relevant football players in the National Football League, certainly not fantasy relevant. I'm going from the perspective of given this wide receiver class sucks, You know, like knowing that it sucks, that's where the surprise of the push against Zay Jones comes. Not the fact that he's not the best prospect in the world. I like Chris Godwin. I've planted my flag on Chris Godwin, Isaiah Ford, Carlos Henderson. Cooper Cup, right? Not Cooper Cup necessarily. Katie Cannon, Taewon Taylor. There are wide receivers I like in this class. I just talked about them last month, and I can't talk about them over and over and over again. But my opinion of Cooper Cup and Zay Jones conflicts with a lot of people that I respect in the industry. I think that's why it becomes a talking point because... Yeah, it's a good point. It's not just that I am largely dismissive of Adarius Stewart. Most people come on this show and, and they agree with me. Adarius Stewart is very unlikely to be an NFL playmaker. But when you talk about a Cooper Cup or a Zay Jones... 
A lot of people that share sensibilities with me in terms of prospect evaluation disagree with that opinion, and that's where it becomes a talking point, and that's how it ends up on my Roto Underworld YouTube channel. So the disagreements about a handful of players are really highlighted when that happens. Let's get right to it. Let's talk about Cooper Cup. Let's compare Cooper Cup to one of these other wide receivers. Another contrived dichotomy. Contrived dichotomy. Cooper Cup or Ishmael Zamora? Here, here's here's the thing about Cooper Cup. Way overrated prospect, right? Yes! We, we, yes! We, yes! We, we know this. They set him up with a hashtag on NFL.com. They're giving him his own show before the draft. What's happening? Well, Steve Smith loves him. That's probably part of the reason. Steve Smith said during his... I don't, look, I don't want to start any more beef with Steve Smith. Trust me. But... <laughs> That's going to be scroll-worthy right there. Steve Smith's an idiot. At the Combine, Steve Smith said that Cooper Cup... I, like, I had to do a double take. Like I rewound my DVR like 14 times to hear him say... He said that Cooper Cup was his wide receiver one. He said that Cooper Cup was his wide receiver one. And it's it, it was shocking <laughs> to, to hear it. say it if you won't say it steve smith you're an idiot i want what happened to me to happen to you on twitter because you would you you embrace that stuff steve smith knows nothing about wide receiver evaluation Woo! spitting some fire um but with cooper cup i mean the thing that's kind of unfortunate is that with any prospect who can move his body um forward yeah, who can who can who can launch forward when the ball is snapped? Um, you know, th- there are scenarios where they can they can pan out in a short period of time. So my fear with Cooper Cup and being, you know, there's a scenario where he goes to a team that that needs a slot. That I mean, obviously, there's a lot of slot guys that that should be taken over him. But that if they spend a high, if a team spends a high equity pick on Cup in the draft, which could happen. <laughs> God. Then exactly. Then you're looking at a scenario where if he falls in the right spot, he could produce from a fantasy standpoint. The reason that you would like from from a pure prospect perspective, I like Zamora way more, right? Because of the upside, right? But but from strictly, if I'm trying to think as objective as I possibly can from a fantasy standpoint, I'm not against like like for instance, we did the we did the uh, Roto World mock, and at the end of the third round, I ended up taking Cooper Cup. And the reason had nothing to do with me liking Cooper Cup, the the prospect. It had everything to do with the fact of how teams think. It goes back to the Latavius Murray example that I that I talked about earlier. Or going back even further, Matt Jones. Sure. Last sure. summer. Yeah. Right. Right. You have these guys who I don't believe in. I never, you know, I don't like Latavius Murray. You can say it for the record too that you don't like Matt Jones too. Yes. Yes. I know that coaches don't always think that way they don't think as what we think is intelligent right they, they know different aspects of these players as well so we can't completely discredit them but you know cooper cup if he if he's a second round pick and he falls to a to a strong offense that has a good quarterback all of a sudden cooper cup is potentially fantasy relevant for a few years until he until he gets to you know three years later when he hits age 40 and he has to retire but cooper cup could produce in fantasy We've seen it before. We've seen Austin Colley be a WR2 in fantasy for a period of time. It was a thing. Right. Austin Colley can be a thing when he's tethered to Peyton Manning, just like Cooper Cup can be a thing if he becomes tethered to, heaven help us, Drew Brees. I mean, if that happens, I will have to leave the country. (laughs) 
I will smuggle myself onto a cargo ship to get the hell out of here. What we need to happen is Cooper Cup needs to go to like the Rams or something. Like he needs to just go to some some. He'll probably oh, see volume. Cooper Cup goes to the Rams. There will be an all night celebration in the Kelly household. <laughs> right, right. The neighbors will call the police. Right. Right. So, you know, there, there are places that he could this. I mean, obviously, anyone who goes to the Saints is like, oh, all of a sudden Cooper Cup post draft will see his ADP rise. It's just the way that it is. That can't happen to me. That can't happen. It's for my own health. It can't happen. It cannot happen. I'll be living in a shipping container on a cargo ship. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that you're not as enthusiastic as others about Evan Ingram. Who you got, Evan Ingram or Bucky Hodges? I like Ingram more. I'm mostly, you know, I'm just not as bullish on um, tight ends in fantasy football, I guess. You know, it's just it, that it's yeah, this isn't your wheelhouse. I, I, I just don't like I don't like investing in tight ends in fantasy football. That That's where the, the the bearishness comes from with this class. I think that this class, you know, in general is insanely talented, insanely insanely talented tight end class yeah and we're, we're gonna see teams spend higher picks on this class than we've seen over the last decade um at, at the position and like like going into this season we're seeing higher grades on these tight ends than we ever saw including that crazy class with with gronk and, and jimmy graham and aaron hernandez and I mean, really, really good tight ends. They weren't as highly touted as these guys. That's true. Just looking at the prospect profiles of the players, not considering what they became in the NFL, this class has the best aggregate draft prospect grade, according to the numbers, of any tight end class we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Better than 2010, which included Rob Gronkowski, Jimmy Graham, and Aaron Hernandez, RIP. Well, no, no, no. Why did I say R.I.P.? No, no, no. That's that's wrong. That was just a that was just a knee jerk reaction because he died. No, rest not in peace. Rest in anxiety. anxiety. R.I.A. Aaron Hernandez. Oh, R.I.A. Rest in anxiety. Um, but yeah, I mean, the other thing too is it's not like our sample size with with tight ends is that massive considering the position has really transformed over the last decade. So we're, you know, we're, we're looking at teams that are investing in the position a lot differently than they used to, which could play somewhat of a part. But with that being said, the top guys at the position are really, I mean, it's, it's pretty insane. Um, oh, and I think one of the reasons why this tight end class is so good is because Bucky Hodges could be the best of the bunch. I think you're wrong on this one. Bucky Hodges has prototypical size, 6'6", 257, and he's just as athletic as Evan Ingram. And just like Evan Ingram, he didn't play in line in college. Right, right. They were both in the 75th percentile or above college dominator, and Bucky Hodges actually broke out at an earlier age. So I like Bucky Hodges over Evan Ingram, and I understand why you got this one wrong, because this isn't a specialty of yours. You have an entire podcast called Living the Stream that revolves around <laughs> streaming tight ends and not giving a fuck about them. I don't, I don't care about tight ends. I don't care about them at all. So this is very understandable how you got this particular contrived dichotomy incorrect. I'm, I'm, I will, look, Ingram has, I, I will go to a box, I will go to a, a, a tight ends, uh, I'll look at his workout metrics, I'll, I'll glance his market share numbers and stuff, and I'm like, well, why am I doing this right now? And then I'll just delete that spreadsheet. Pro tip for you for next time, don't buy the tight end that's 235 pounds. <laughs> just so you know, that's not gonna happen. There's one Jordan Reed every 10 years. Oh, I love so it. So here's a sharp breaking, sharp breaking curveball question that wasn't in the show sheet 
Oh, here we go. Do I specialize in forced laughter on this show? You? I am often accused of forced laughter on this show. No, I think I think it's that's you. I think it's all genuine. Yeah, you could answer this better than anyone. You yeah. spent time with me for days. Do I laugh a lot? Yeah, of course. We 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 sat and we drank liquor many nights together and I've seen you react to things the same way that you react to things on this show. Fuck you, people on YouTube, and fuck you, people on Twitter, who say that this is a stick. It's not a stick. I just love living life. Why don't you try doing that, buzzards? Live life like it's a romantic comedy, guys. This is why you're one of my favorite guests on the show. Maybe my favorite, because you just nailed it. Like, that line was replaying in my head from a previous pod. I would have had to go into the archives and pull it and copy it. <laughs> Into this podcast, which I would have done. That's the level of attention to detail that I have, and you just said it yourself. That was so fucking brilliant. I I, I have to. I can't. I can't allow my drunken self to be to be listened to again on this show. You didn't say that on a podcast. I I stand corrected. You said that on the street in Nashville <laughs> at the yeah. FSTA conference. Oh my god! Even better. Yeah. After just a few drinks. Yeah, you're a genius. You also have to be a genius to find a good landing spot for John Ross. Have you found one yet? You know, I think a lot of people are putting him on Tennessee, which I can understand to a degree. Um, I think that he could fit in Carolina, but they're not in a spot to really take him. I hope not, um, unless he falls dramatically, but I, I hope not. That is the perfect landing spot for him, Carolina. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so too. Um, one kind of low-key spot that I'm kind of intrigued is, is Detroit. And the reason is because... We know that they need that guy who can stretch the field. Marvin Jones, I love the guy to death, but... Miscast in that role. Yeah, miscast in that role. Um, I, I think Marvin Jones is, is a decent football player, but he just he didn't fit the way they used him. Um, and the other thing, too, is what they do there is they allow their wide receivers to really make plays. And I think that that's where John Ross would, you know, hypothetically be able to thrive. So you get that lower average depth of target quarterback... Uh, and you then allow John Ross to also stretch the field in an offense that throws a lot of passes. I think that's that's probably one of the best spots that, that we could find for him. But no, I love that. I love that's the answer. It's Detroit because that allows Marvin Jones to move to flanker, which is his natural position, and then that also moves Golden Tate to the slot, which now that he's 28 years old is also his natural position. So I love that. That forces the Lions to reconfigure their entire passing game and optimize it. Yeah. That's brilliant. You are a genius. You're very, 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 very good at this. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. So when you're looking at the rankings of others who are clearly not as smart as you, I'll say that flatly. I've met a lot of people in this industry. <laughs> who is that one rookie that you have much higher than consensus? And you may have had him there from the beginning. And even today, you still cannot figure out what you're missing on this player. Why no one else feels the way you do. Taewon Taylor, I think is is the guy. Yeah, I think he's oh, yeah. I think he's fringe top five in the class, maybe even in the top five, and he's being drafted behind Ordarius Stewart and Cooper Cup and these and these startups. I don't I don't really get it. Um, you know, granted he he's he's gone in the second round in you know early, even sometimes earlier, just depending on who's drafting in these rookie mocks. But he is uh, wide receiver 15 on myfantasyleague.com right now, which to me is is pretty insane. But what? Yeah, that's what I, I I looked at it today and I was like, no, that can't be right. But but regardless, regardless, people are drafting Cooper Cup ahead of him. Wait, wait, well, let me let me dig into this for a second. If he is the number 15 rookie off the board in dynasty rookie drafts, 
that has to mean that he's he was behind our Darius Stewart. He was behind Cooper Cup. He was behind D.D. Westbrook. He was behind. He must be being drafted after players like D.D. Westbrook. I just did a quick look because I was curious whenever I was thinking about Taewon Taylor. But like, if you look at at his numbers, they're they're pretty incredible across the board. I mean, he yes. has thirty plus percent market share in, in targets, receptions, yards, touchdowns. He had, he had over forty percent market share uh, in, in touchdowns last season. Um, you know, I think you know while he went to a small school, his production you know is good enough to compensate for that change. Uh, he was incredibly efficient in all three years, uh, you know, sophomore through through senior seasons. Um, where he had that, he had 17 plus yards per reception each of those seasons. Um, and, and I, you know, he doesn't have necessarily incredible straight line speed, but I, uh, read Matt Harmon's reception perception on him as well. And it really matched up to, it was funny cause I, I read his reception perception. You know, I had these numbers in my mind and I'm like, man, and then I read the reception perception. I'm thinking like, man, if he finds a, a good landing spot, he could produce like a Doug Baldwin. And then I go on player profiler and that's top comp. And I'm like, damn, this is who, this is Taewon Taylor. This is it. Um, so I, I, I like him a lot and I, I think I like him much more than, um, you know, where the, the consensus stands on him. If I had a nickel for every time someone had a comp in their head and they went to player profiler and it was the same and they fell in love with the website, I'd have like 15 cents, but it would be still every time it happens. It's really cool. It's happened multiple times for me though. It's always fun to, when, when, when that comes together, you feel good about the way that you were viewing a player. You're able to decode the matrix. That's what that means right there. Yeah. And I want to congratulate you. You made it through all the prospect questions. Boom. J.J. Zacharyson was never an NFL draft guy until this year. This is his first year taking the NFL draft seriously. And I have to say, you knocked those questions out of the park. Thanks, man. Woo! Great job. You did it. Thanks, man. You made it. You just you made it through the gauntlet of draft questions, and now we get right into your wheelhouse. Redraft. Oh yes, the thing that you are very good at, I would say. I just don't wanna I don't wanna compliment you too much. So I talked on a previous podcast about buying all the pieces of a particular offense. I think there are a handful of teams out there that have two things in their favor, an underrated quarterback and an underrated offensive line. And when you have those two components working in harmony, every member of that offense becomes a buy in fantasy. Do you agree with that? And do you have a team in mind? Yeah, I I definitely agree. Um, Generally, we see ADP reflect that whenever you can find that team and and you can look back uh, on a previous season and and see who those teams were. Um, I I think one team that I would be buying uh, and redraft this year, just given ADP, is probably Washington. Um, You know, I I, I love Terrell Pryor's upside in that offense. Judges? I think Terrell Pryor has top 10 upside pretty easily at the wide receiver position this year. Um, you have Jamison Crowder. Top 10? I think I think Terrell Pryor has top 10 potential wide receiver this year. Yeah. Upside. Yeah. Wow. As the true X receiver on the outside, tethered to one of the league's highest volume quarterbacks, 
Why not? Yeah. I, I well, the, the thing is, I mean, if you look at like he's not going to see as many as much volume as he did last season, obviously, but he was also incredibly inefficient last season. Um, that role he can be very, very efficient uh, from an air yard standpoint. It matches up well with what Kirk Cousins does and did last season. So I, I think that he's a really good match. And then Jamison Crowder by default is going to see probably more volume than he did last season from a market share standpoint with without Djax and Garcon there. Um, the fear with Jamison Crowder is just natural touchdown regression, but I think that the volume itself, because last season he scored seven touchdowns, I think it was on, on 99 targets, but without those guys there, he could, he could reach 120 targets. Uh, and I think, I think prior could be in that 130 range. And if that's the case, and this is, this is also projecting with a healthy Jordan Reed, which who the hell knows with Jordan Reed. Bingo. That's the one player I'm not buying in that offense, because if Jordan Reed goes down, Jamison Crowder is going to go bananas and Terrell Pryor will be even more productive. The law of the conservation of targets tells us if a key member of the offense goes down, there is a target vacuum and all the pieces on that offense are going to move to fill it regardless of the role that they play. But in particular, Jamison Crowder operates over the middle in that same zone where Jordan Reed would have operated. Right. And the other the other thing, too, is their running back situation is one. I mean, it's one of those situations where whichever running back they draft first in the draft is going to be. It's a joke, JJ. It's laughable. Their running back situation is actually hilarious. Even though their starting running back's last name is Kelly, I still find it hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's 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 very, very atrocious. And given that, the good thing, I should say, for a guy like Pryor, who also, by the way, Pryor, from a regression standpoint, another reason to love Pryor is that of all the guys, so I do regression analysis with uh, our expected points model where I take how many expected points these wide receivers scored, do a little regression analysis and show how many they should have scored. No player in football last year should have scored more touchdowns than he actually did than Terrell Pryor. So there's there's that going for him. And then you add on top, obviously it has to do with quarterback play to a degree, but you add on top, he's getting a better quarterback. And then you add on top that their tendency closer to the goal line will probably continue to be to throw the football because they don't have that running back. It really comes together. That's, that's a huge reason why I'm so into both Pryor and Jamison Crowder and why I'm not as afraid of that touchdown regression for, for Crowder. They will be throwing the ball in the red zone. And who are they going to target? Of course, they're going to target the guy that's 6'4" with the 99th percentile height adjusted speed score. You think they're going to throw it to that guy? Of course. <laughs> and one of the reasons why it's a prolific offense, as I said, is because Kirk Cousins throws the ball more than 600 times a season because they don't have a running game. And beyond that, 94 deep ball attempts last year was number one in the NFL. And now there's no Deshaun Jackson, who is super fast with an incredible catch radius who can get downfield and make plays for a quarterback that likes to throw the ball deep 100 times a season, Terrell Pryor. And you mentioned efficiency with Terrell Pryor. His efficiency will spike with improved quarterback play this year. Book it. But, you know, JJ, I just keep hearing that, uh, hmm, you know, efficiency doesn't matter. Really, it doesn't matter anymore. All you need to worry about is volume. Efficiency's overrated. I don't even look at efficiency anymore. It's so 2015. Why would I look at efficiency in 2017? Ew! <laughs> the problem is, you and I both work for player efficiency pioneers. 
So should we just close our sights because the fantasy hipsters have soured on efficiency and just sort a list of wide receivers by normalized targets and just call it a day? So here's the thing. So if you take per target efficiency, so let's say yards per target of all wide receivers from one year and do it and, and look at the correlation, the R squared value from one year to the next, the R squared value is non-existent, right? I mean, it, there, there is no correlation between the yards per attempt, the fantasy points per attempt of one season for a wide receiver or yeah, for a wide receiver than to what happens the following season, right? So I don't see that as efficiency doesn't matter. I see that as efficiency is probably not as predictive as some might think in the industry. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of articles that you'll see and hear and and, and, and podcasts that you'll hear and, and so on where these guys will cite fantasy points per target and they'll sort of assign fantasy points per target and say, well, if he gets more volume and he continues that fantasy points per target efficiency, then therefore he'll be a lot better. And I used to do that back in the day too, you know, back in 2011. But right. the, 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 the problem with that is that it's just, it, that's not how things carry over. Now, Within a player, that's a full-blown fallacy, and it's bad analysis. Right. Within a player, though, I mentioned Taewon Taylor earlier. Right. One of the things that you can look at with him is that he consistently was doing this year in and year out. He was an incredibly efficient player year in and year out. That's where I think efficiency can come into play, and you can say, okay, maybe this guy. You know, obviously, the the, the thing with with wide receivers, why why it's difficult, is because efficiency is always a per target or per, per reception metric. Um, and the, and a per target metric is inherently flawed because targets are not created equal. So there's no blanket way of looking at all of this, right? A, a Jarvis Landry catching a pass from Ryan Tannehill behind the line of scrimmage is a lot different than what Terrell Pryor is going to see with Kirk Cousins. So any per target efficiency is naturally going to give you incorrect numbers, if you will. Um, but again, if you look at within the player and how he's done throughout his career, then you can start to see when potential dips are occurring. Um, you can start to see when, if, if he hits age 31, or if he hits age 30, or if he's, if he's getting older, and he starts to decline from an efficiency standpoint when he's been very, very consistently efficient, especially if his A dot continues to be the same, that's when you can use efficiency. Uh-oh! Efficiency right. might matter in that situation! Right. I don't right. know why I'm using this voice! Look at Jarvis Landry. You can't tell me that a player with a yards per target under seven for consecutive seasons, 32 games, you can't tell me that's not an indictment of his overall ability. You talked about it with Zay Jones. Why isn't Zay Jones being used downfield? Well, it may be that that's not where these players win. Right. The yards per target tells you that Jarvis Landry cannot be a downfield threat. They're throwing it to him behind the line of scrimmage because that's where he can win. But that is an indictment in and of itself in that you're a wide receiver that can only win behind the line of scrimmage. That's where, you know, I, I think efficiency, it, like efficiency tells us more about discovering how these wide receivers are being used, right? So a Jarvis Landry who's going to or a Julian Edelman who are going to have low per target numbers, low efficiency, that shouldn't be a 
I'm going to 100%, no matter what, not draft this guy in fantasy football or take a look at him. That should be more of a, I'm going to dig in and see how they're using him. And if they're using him that same way year in and year out, then maybe that's just who he is and his upside isn't necessarily there. The difference with Julian Edelman is that he has Tom Brady throwing him passes, so he'll have these random seasons where he plays nine games and scores seven touchdowns. Whereas Jarvis Landry doesn't have that because he has Ryan Tannehill throwing him passes. And Julian Edelman has well above average burst, 123.6, 64th percentile burst score, and 99th percentile agility. So he's much more athletic than Jarvis Landry, and it makes sense that he would be a better downfield option. He would be better after the catch than Jarvis Landry, which all contributes to Julian Edelman being more efficient. For many years with the Patriots, Julian Edelman was a very efficient wide receiver, until last year. Last year, Julian Edelman's production premium, which is our situation agnostic efficiency metric, looking at every given down and distance, how efficient was Julian Edelman on a per target basis? Negative 19.5, 94th in the NFL. His efficiency cratered last year and no one's talking about it, but I am because I think it matters in specific cases. I agree that efficiency is less important than many would hope, right. that many assume but the problem is there is no super metric skeleton key. There is no adjusted targets metric out there that is going to unlock the potential of every receiver and just allow you to sort all the receivers by a single number and solve fantasy football. That's not how it works. On a case-by-case basis, certain metrics matter more than others. And in the case of efficiency, it matters most for players on the margins and players in transition. It matters when a player is changing teams more. That's why it's more interesting to talk about Terrell Pryor's efficiency than it is to talk about Antonio Brown's efficiency. It also matters for young players with expiring draft capital, like Kevin White. They may no longer feed Kevin White because his draft capital has expired. The team has lost that love and feeling with Kevin White, and they've come to Jesus on him and realized, oh, He's not what we thought he was when we took him with the seventh overall pick. And it's also relevant more for aging players in these fluid situations like a Julian Edelman who now has to compete for targets with Brandon Cooks, who is a better player by every measurement system than Julian Edelman. In that context, Julian Edelman's declining efficiency in 2016 absolutely matters. I'm old enough to remember Kendall Wright. When the Titans lost their love and feeling, I'm old enough to remember Andre Johnson in his final year with the Texans, his efficiency cratered. So the warning signs were there for those of us that actually want to pay attention to efficiency in context when it matters. I think with Julian Edelman, my hesitation with, you know, thinking that like, Andre Johnson's situation was was a very, very quick just I'm disappearing off the face of the earth, right? It, it came a consecutive... Shocking. It was a shocking decline. Same with Roddy White. Shocking. Yeah, Roddy White was the same way. They were just extinguished. Right. I, I don't necessarily see it. I, I don't see this, the discrepancy just yet with Julian Edelman, and I think that... Not yet. But I think that that offense also has always just played into his strengths so well. So I'm I'm not as concerned i think that he's still going to garner a pretty pretty hefty market share and i think the reason that you would be down on brandon cooks this this season is not necessarily because of julian edelman's inefficiency but just because 
there's so many mouths to feed there. There just are. There's a lot. You get a healthy Gronk. You get Julian Edelman. We're an hour and 20 minutes into the show, and you just dropped your first cliche. That's a great job, too. I mean, you go an hour, 20 minutes to hit me with a too many mouths to feed cliche. That's impressive. <laughs> there are. It's just it's how it is in New England. I, I think that Brandon Cooks is going to see a similar market share as he did in New Orleans. But the problem with that is he's not playing in the Superdome and he's not. Uh, the, the, the Patriots don't throw as much as New England, as New Orleans does. Um, so I, I, I think that he did take a slight hit from moving. I love Brandon. I, I think Brandon Cooks is a really good player. Excellent player. I think that the trade that they made was, was smart and it made sense and genius and all, all of the above. Um, but I, you know, I, I still think that Julian Edelman is going to have a role in this offense. I still think Julian Edelman can take 20% of the market share in this offense. And that to me is the biggest fear with Brandon Cooks and fantasy, at least in the short term. Yeah, Brandon Cooks may go from being the number nine wide receiver in fantasy to the number 12 wide receiver in fantasy. Oh, well, that's still WR1 status. And if Julian Edelman does decline more than we expect, then it's going to be bananas. And if the Patriots pick up his option for 2018, if you own him in Dynasty, look out below. Potential number one wide receiver in all of fantasy in 2018. Put that on the scroll, JJ. Man, that's some that's some fire there, Matt. Well, that's one of those rhetorical tricks where if you say 2018, you can say literally anything you want, and no <laughs> one will remember a year from now what I said on a podcast in April of 2017 about the 2018 season. I can say anything. I mean, it is hot take immunity. I'll say I think Brandon Cooks is a fringe top 20 guy this year. That's my that's my take on him. Ooh, ooh, ooh. He could fall out of the top 24. Oh, no. He wouldn't be at WR2. Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, look at Fantasy Mansion with his contrived screaming. Just fake screaming for effect. Yeah, I scream for effect sometimes because the effect is fucking funny. The result is people laugh because the effect is funny. Assholes. Contrived laughter. Get out of here. So you and I have talked a lot about the RB renaissance that we experienced last season. No one would dispute it. David Johnson, 400 fantasy points. <laughs> Ezekiel Elliott, amazing. Le'Veon Bell was even more productive on a per-game basis than David Johnson. So we are in the midst of our RB renaissance, yet I think the industry consensus has coalesced in that zero RB is not dead. I think we've read enough zero RB is not dead yet articles this season, and I think the biggest reason why zero RB is not dead yet is that the league has been consistently skewing pass over run for the reasons you mentioned earlier. Slowly but surely, analytics are infiltrating NFL front offices and NFL coaching staffs, and they're starting to realize the pass is more efficient than the run, and that's creating this trend, which is undeniable because it's been consistent year over year over year over year. Teams are passing more than they're running. So zero RB is absolutely a thing. But would you believe that in Dynasty, I typically go robust RB? I've had Dynasty startups where I went zero wide receiver. Can you believe that? That's a little shocking. It's a little shocking. But I, I, I will say with the, the quote unquote renaissance, I think that the, what's going on in fantasy is 
we have this group of running backs who are true, true, actual three down backs, right? So we had Le'Veon, David Johnson, probably Zeke upcoming, even though he wasn't really that from a receiving perspective his rookie year. Oh, could you just stop with that? I, I'm, I'm, you and Ezekiel Elliott, man. Why do you always have to throw in these caveats when talking about Ezekiel Elliott? <laughs> he wasn't that his rookie year. You have something against him. Did he steal your girlfriend? What happened? Why was Lance Dunbar on the field when that team was about to lose to the Giants? That's the Enough! He's a stud! Why was Lance I own him on a dynasty team! Look, there's 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 the three there's the big three, right? Um and, and the, the real problem is that not only is the NFL throwing the ball more, not only are pass to run ratios increasing, not only are running back rushes decreasing each year, but on top of that, because of this, there are more specialty rules at the running back position. And what that does is it makes both zero RB and the ability to have one of those running backs both very, very viable in fantasy football. We, we have these battles all the time where people are like, oh, no, you, you, know, you have to go zero RB. And then someone says, no, you have to get these running backs. Well, the, 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 the biggest advantage you can get in fan- this is not debatable. The biggest advantage that you can have in fantasy football is having one of those elite running backs, right? That is the single greatest advantage that you can have in fantasy football. The problem is that getting those running backs is not... Indisputable. Yeah, the, the, the problem is that getting those running backs is not an easy thing to do. But it is in Dynasty. You're almost guaranteed to get one of those three in a Dynasty startup because so many Correct. value the wide receiver position more than the running back position Correct. because of the longevity of the wide receiver position. I find myself locking up either David Johnson or Ezekiel Elliott or Le'Veon Bell and loving it in Dynasty. Yeah, we we have similar beliefs with Dynasty too, and just the 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 win now all the time because you can in the the trading of draft. I mean, it's just it's it's ridiculous, but. The, 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 the bottom line with this is that people are not wrong with zero RB and people are not wrong with not looking at zero RB because w- what zero RB is saying is that, look, we're imperfect and it's very difficult to pinpoint who these running backs are each year. And therefore, we can wait on the position and get more secure players at wide receiver and win that way, especially in a flex league with a PP, with PPR where you're going to start a wide receiver over running back, which changes the demand of the position. But the thing is, is that those backs are giving you such a significant edge. And the reason that you can wait, and uh, by the way, with, with zero RB is because of the specialty roles that these running backs are playing, like I was talking about. You get the the Bilal Pals of the world who ha- see carries, uh, but they have the upside as well if that RB1 goes down. I mean, was there was there a better candidate last year, and this isn't even hindsight analysis, than Bilal Powell for, for zero RB teams, right? No, for two consecutive years, 2015 and 2016, it was Bilal Powell. Right, right. So it, it you can pinpoint these running backs because he played a specific role on that team. It, it's great when you can find the pass-catching backs who also will see some early down work or maybe rotate uh, every three drives or something and be on the field. That's why zero RB can work. But on the flip side, teams that had David Johnson, that have Le'Veon Bell, that have Ezekiel Elliott win a lot as well because those players are giving you such a big advantage. So I think, I mean, this is such a stupid answer because I think both work. And, and it's it's silly to me that there's such a divide. Um, I, I believe in zero RB, but I also believe in the fact that you 1 million percent can win by drafting running backs early. I think the one thing we can agree on is you want to avoid the overrated running back. Yeah. I know that sounds <laughs> obvious. It's true. But there are certain draft slots in rounds three, four, five, six, where it's paramount that you avoid running backs being drafted in those slots. We 
a couple years ago, Jeremy Hill. There are certain cases where running backs are grossly overdrafted because of their projected role and because they performed well in a small sample size the year before. If you're savvy enough to avoid those running backs in all formats, you're going to come out ahead, whether you do zero RB or you draft one of those elite running backs in the first round. One of the reasons why I like to draft running backs early in Dynasty is because in Dynasty, we're not susceptible to the annual volatility that the running back position suffers from. Mm -hmm. I am confident in my evaluation of the intrinsic quality of a group of running backs, one of them being Tevin Coleman, for example. I'm not going to be drafting Tevin Coleman in redraft anywhere this year. Forget it. He's not even the starter. So no, I'm not drafting him in redraft. But in Dynasty, I'm confident in my evaluation of Tevin Coleman. So I will use an early round pick on Tevin Coleman in Dynasty where I would never dream of doing that in redraft. Also, in most Dynasty leagues, you cannot stream other positions other than wide receiver. I'm in many Dynasty leagues where the only streamable position is wide receiver. If if your running backs get nuked in a lot of Dynasty leagues, you're fucked. You're absolutely fucked because they're so deep and the stream is not there. Bilal Powell is owned in those leagues. So it's much more important to have a stable of productive running backs in that particular format. And with the wide receiver position, what we're seeing now is the way quarterbacks are distributing targets, they're not so focused on feeding their number one wide receiver any longer. They're spreading the ball out more, especially in the red zone as the fade is becoming less popular and that quick slant is becoming more popular. So we're seeing more wide receivers be fantasy relevant on a weekly basis than we ever have, while the highest end wide receivers, their production was muted last year. And I think that's a trend that's going to continue as teams are spreading the defense out and they're playing more and more three and four wide receiver sets. What that means in fantasy is the best wide receivers are not as much of a competitive advantage as they used to be, but there's a lot more wide receivers that can help your fantasy team. And in dynasty, that means that you have access to productive wide receivers at the end of a startup and in free agency, and you don't have that luxury with any of the other positions which creates a disincentive on drafting wide receivers early in Dynasty. Yeah, and longevity is way, way overrated in Dynasty leagues. Kaboom. Sharp, sharp, breaking curveball. Is Colin Kaepernick being blackballed? Dude, I don't give these takes, Matt. Judges? <laughs> no, the answer is now that Tony Romo has retired, if Colin Kaepernick's not signed by minicamp, it will be clear that teams like the Houston Texans and the Denver Broncos who are in win-now mode with below-replacement-level quarterbacks are, in fact, blackballing Colin Kaepernick. Are you over Amir Abdullah, Jarek McKinnon, the uber-athletes that just have not fired? Are you the one that's dismissing those guys and saying they can't play? Or are you like me and continuing to go to playerprofiler.com, look up those players, and say, oh, wow, so this guy has potential... I'm going to continue to roster him because he's been unlucky, period. I think you have to look at what the team does, the front office does. It's why, and what the coaching does and what the front office does. That's why I'm not as high on McKinnon anymore um, and why I'm still okay with Abdullah. Uh, we don't have as big of a sample in terms of potential uh, with Abdullah just yet because you know we saw last season with, with McKinnon, we saw how that coaching staff treated him 
especially close to the goal line. Then they go out and they get Latavius Murray, who, again, I don't like Latavius Murray. It's just a situation where, like, you have to look at what these coaches are doing regardless of what your particular talent evaluation is saying. That's all part of the, the greater picture here. So, you know, and there's a chance that they draft a running back. There's a chance that Detroit drafts a running back, too. Um, I just think that there's still more ambiguity with Amir Abdullah. So I'm not completely giving up on giving up on him. But McKinnon, man, it's tough because, you know, I was I was into him. Um, it, it's sad to see what what happened last year. I think that was just kind of the breaking point. How about CJ Prosize? Is he the back to own in Seattle? I think in redraft, it's still Lacey. Um, just, you know, ADP aside, oh, just listen, really? listen. Yeah, ADP aside, yeah. But I'm not going to be drafting. I'm not going to be drafting Eddie Lacy. <laughs> I love it. You're just so dismissive. Your tone was just so dismissive. Yeah, I'm not going to draft Eddie Lacy. But, but like, here, here's the thing. I always, and I've talked about this. Is what we talked about with Foreman and McNichols. I'm always going to lean towards those pass catching backs. Um, so I, I, I do. Hate that they signed Lacey because I think ProSize has that upside, obviously, of being of getting more of the, that early down work. Um, but Lacey's just natural presence, uh, you know, is not going to help him in the short term. It's not it's not a good thing for him in 2017. But in the long run, I think it's actually not a, a, a not that bad because what we're getting from Seattle. So from from a dynasty standpoint, I still think ProSize is great. Because what we're getting from Seattle is they're saying, we clearly don't like Thomas Rawls, no. right? Yes. No, they, they hate him. Right. It's finally out there. They don't like, you know, God forbid, they don't like a guy who only was good for two games. But they, they don't like Thomas Rawls. <laughs> they get they get Eddie, Eddie Lacy. <laughs> they sign Eddie Lacy to a one-year deal, and Thomas Rawls is going to be out next season. All of a sudden, this opens up a lot for CJ Prosize. So Yeah. This season, no for CJ Prosize, but his upside is so awesome. Yeah. Dynasty, baby. Yeah. Great dynasty stash. How about Duke Johnson and or Isaiah Crowell? I like this Browns running game. Is it sneaky good? Um, I'll say I, I, Crowell is interesting because, you know, I like to associate my running backs with good quarterback play and good offenses. Um, but Crowell last season, he was 12th in carries inside the five-yard line. He scored five times from there. Just unbelievable efficiency from a player on the Browns. Shocking. Like, and, and you look at, you know, if you if you think that there's touchdown regression coming because of what, you know, the opportunity that he saw, Mike, Mike Clay's OTD metric says that he should have scored as many as he did, which is very, very important. Um, I don't see that, that that fluctuating. Their offensive line improved. Um, so I, I like I like Isaiah Crowell a, a, a decent bit uh, this season. You know, Duke, I think, took a hit with Hugh coming in. Um, I, I think, you know, we, we want that negative script to really aid him and, and just give him those cheap PPR points. But the way that they want to win is just not the way that that Duke Johnson fits, as, considering where we thought he would be two years ago. Hugh Jackson is overriding the game script and continuing to give Isaiah Crowell carries when the Browns are down double digits, and those of us that own Duke Johnson are furious. Yeah. This is the perfect situation for a satellite back playing for a team that's always behind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> whoa, whoa. So I like both backs for that reason. I think that Duke Johnson will receive more opportunities this year, but I also love how efficient Isaiah Crowell was, and I loved his usage last year despite being a cog in that Browns offense. Now look at Jordan Howard. 
Jordan Howard not as efficient as Isaiah Crowell, but close. And he was also not part of a prolific offense. No one considers the Bears an efficient offense. But somehow, someway, Jordan Howard was an RB1 in fantasy. Is he now primed to experience a Todd Gurley leveling out year in 2017? I don't think so. Um, you know, I think that if you if you look at, let's say, a Jay Ajayi versus Jordan Howard, right? Uh, Jay Ajayi, to me, was far more reliant on what was going on around him than Jordan Howard last year. Jay Ajayi, his top games were when his offensive line was completely 100%. The instant one of those big three guys they had in the offensive line went down, Jay Ajayi didn't perform. That was pretty good. That was good. That was good. That was pretty good. That was good. It took me three times, but it was pretty good. So I think that's a red flag for Ajayi. But but with Jordan Howard, if we compare him to, like, let's look at what happened to Todd Gurley. Todd Gurley's rookie season, he was very, very efficient. But we use a metric at number fire called success rate, which is the percentage of runs that positively impacted a player's expected points total, right? And in 2015, Todd Gurley's rookie year, he had a 36.24% success rate, which is far below average. That's an even bigger red flag when you are insanely efficient, because what it's showing you is that you were efficient due to splash plays and big runs. You weren't consistently helping the expected points for your offense, but when you did, you were doing it in, in a big way. And then in 2016, his success rate went down only 1%. He was still bad. The average is about 40% for running backs. This was far below that his rookie year, far below that last year. Meaning, I mean, it's a very Adrian Peterson. I mean, Adrian Peterson was never that low, but it's a very Adrian Peterson way of, of running the football. Whereas Jordan Howard, the fear that you might have with Jordan Howard would be more in line with Jeremy Hill than it would be with Todd Gurley because he was just uber efficient in every way, shape, or form last year. But I don't see it being a Jeremy Hill situation because Jeremy Hill still was in some sort of a split backfield. The the, the Bears' offensive line is not bad at all. Um, I, I don't mind Jordan Howard. I don't think that he's going to see a dip like Todd Gurley did uh, in year two. Jay Ajay, 15 breakaway runs of 15 yards or more last season. That was top five in the NFL. So he did benefit from some splash plays that likely won't be repeated because the Dolphins have one of the league's worst offensive lines. Bottom five run blocking efficiency for the Miami Dolphins. That's not going to change. On the flip side, Jordan Howard has one of the best offensive lines in all of football. The Bears last year, according to Player Profiler, had the most efficient run-blocking offensive line in all of football. While they had similar seasons on paper last season, they're very different running backs in very different situations heading into 2017. And on the surface, it may appear that Jordan Howard, because he'll be paired with Mike Glennon, is more likely to be this year's Todd Gurley, but I agree with you. It's actually Jay Ajayi who is most likely to bust of all those running backs. And Jay Ajayi is the running back we talked about. You want to avoid players like Jay Ajayi in all formats. That's one of the keys to winning your fantasy football league. Do not draft the Jay Ajayi archetype in those early rounds. That will torpedo your fantasy team. Now, speaking of MFLs, do these early drafts right now on my fantasy league. Who's that one wide receiver you're targeting in those final rounds if you're doing any redraft leagues this early? Dude, I, I'm so into Ted Ginn right now. Judges? Yes, yes, 
Ted Ginn saw 16 to 19% of Carolina's targets over the two years uh, in Carolina for 95 and 96 targets, right? Brandon Cooks is now gone out of New Orleans. He takes away over 17% of the market share in New Orleans and 117 targets because they threw more than what Carolina threw. We know that Ted Ginn is good at stretching the field and catching those deep balls. Drew Brees was eighth in 15-plus yard passes last year in attempts. Uh, That's just attempt-wise. And he had the most yards in football on those passes. So he's just... It, over the last f- decade, Drew Brees has been the best deep thrower in the NFL, and that is what Ted Ginn specializes in. Such an incredible fit. It's it's it. Ted Ginn. I, I said this the instant he was signed. Ted Ginn was meant to play for the Saints, right? Like he he is so perfect. He is Devery Henderson 2.0. Get this garbage out that Ted Ginn is not a good wide receiver because he drops passes. Get 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 that trash out of here. Ted Ginn is good. He's going to fit perfectly in this offense. I think Ted Ginn, from a fantasy perspective, could easily, easily, easily be a top 30 guy this year. Now, do not let your draft expire without rostering Ted Ginn. He's a must draft in the later rounds. He's been dismissed and discarded for anecdotal reasons only. People are tired of Ted Ginn. They don't like him as a player because drop passes are aesthetically damaging to a player. But aesthetics don't win you fantasy leagues. And now for a sharp, sharp breaking curveball. Do you prefer doing a podcast by yourself or with Denny Carter? Never with Denny Carter. Okay. Which player could have his opportunity and fantasy stock crash during the NFL draft? You know, completely out of nowhere, a la Trey Mason two years ago when Todd Gurley was drafted. Who's that player this year who will be walking through the mall and just drop his phone because he just got an alert that he lost his job? Spencer Ware. Spencer Ware. I think uh, there's a very good real chance that Kansas City takes a mid-round running back in this draft. Spencer Ware wasn't as good last season as he was two years ago. And we know that they are, they play, I mean, they, they, they have a pass catching, right? He was better as a pass catcher last year, but they still have a general pass catching role void that they want to fill. And that's a way for a running back to kind of inch his way into an offense. So I think I am I'm, I'm, I'd be a little worried. I, you know, I wouldn't be drafting Spencer Ware right now in MFL tens, like in the fourth round where he's going. I think the Detroit lions could draft David and Joku. And if David and Joku goes to the lions, He's better across the board than Eric Ebron by every measure, just looking at prospect profiles. And Eric Ebron isn't perceived to have had a successful NFL career thus far, even though he actually hasn't been bad. Eric Ebron looks like the Ted Ginn of tight ends to me, underappreciated thus far because of aesthetics, but I don't think that'll matter. I think that if David Njoku lands on Detroit, it's game over for Eric Ebron. the scroll jj man that's some that's some fire there matt they were just extinguished fuck you people on youtube and fuck you people on twitter who say that this is a stick it's not a stick i just love living life why don't you try doing that buzzards i'm surprised that you don't like zay jones 
and you look at the top 10 wide receivers. Oh, 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 what? Wait, what? Wait, there's no Zay Jones in the top 10? Right, right, right. Yeah, sure. Not Cooper Cup necessarily. <laughs> I'll say it if you won't say it. Steve Smith, you're an idiot. Steve Smith knows nothing about wide receiver evaluation. With any prospect who can move his body. I will smuggle myself onto a cargo ship to get the hell out of here. It's for my own health. It can't happen. It cannot happen. I'll be living in a shipping container on a cargo ship. Cooper Cup goes to the Rams. There will be an all-night celebration in the Kelly household. The neighbors will call the police. Right, right, right. Yeah, sure. You don't want to go to Oakland now because the running back they have in the backfield specializes in run through a motherfucker's face. You can't be wrong is the thing. That's the thing. I'm just going to do what I do, and it's really a template. (laughs) I could basically say the same thing about basketball players, golfers, defensive players, and it'll sound just as authoritative if I back up my opinion with data. Well, my take on him is he's the best prospect in my history in this business, which is a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, like, like, cool, man. With the 99th percentile light adjusted speed score, you think they're going to throw it to that guy? Of course. Right, right, right. Yeah, sure. Aesthetics don't win you fantasy leagues. But in general, bad class, dude. After Miles Garrett, he's the only five-star prospect in this entire class. Right, right, right. Yeah, sure. You can't rationalize away the way a player was used when he was the number one wide receiver on East fucking Carolina. <laughs> how many how many touchdowns would Doug Baldwin have if he were on Houston? I think it would probably be three to five. Why would I look at efficiency in 2017? Ew! In that you're a wide receiver that can only win behind the line of scrimmage! Uh-oh! Efficiency might matter in that situation! I don't know why I'm using this voice! Right, right, right. Yeah, sure. I go to sleep at night and I wake up in the morning feeling bad for Kenny Britt. Yeah, every day. Every single day. You don't think about your child, you think about Kenny Britt. What bad luck this guy has had, because he looked like a Hall of Famer coming out of college and then for the first couple years. And then, boom. You broke my heart, Kenny! You broke my heart! Right, right, right. Yeah, sure. Well, no, no, no. Why did I say R.I.P.? No, no, that's that's wrong. That was just a, that was just a knee-jerk reaction because he died. No, rest not in peace. Rest in anxiety. No, it's game over for Eric. No, actually, you know what? I'll do it even stronger. Yeah. It's game over for Eric Ebron. Boom. And then... Boom. You have an entire podcast called Living the Stream that revolves around streaming tight ends and not giving a fuck about them. I don't don't care about tight ends. I don't care about them at all. I love the outtake shows. I find myself pronouncing extra in what the interviewee feels like it's just a a banter. And meanwhile, I'm like pronouncing all of my R's (laughs) because I know this is going in the outtakes, JJ. Maybe you don't, but I do. It's all about me. I want to sound great.
I'm not going to be drafting Eddie Lacy. God forbid they don't like a guy who only was good for two games. Aww. Aaron Nagler was mean to some fantasy people and they got real upset. Say it to my face, Aaron! Say that to my face! Analyzing football players using data and information you can actually measure to come up with our conclusions. Oh, no one ever does that, except, I don't know, scientists. <laughs> except literally everyone. Matt Williamson, you listen to the show, you're wrong. Best player available is the dumbest thing on earth. Best player available is the dumbest thing on earth. Best player available is the dumbest thing on earth. Typical Evan Silva carrying water for the scouting industrial complex of the NFL. This is a draft class where you want picks. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, sure. He's a stud. <laughs> I was listening. I own him on a dynasty team. Yeah, and longevity is way, way overrated in dynasty leagues. And I can say anything. I mean, it is hot take immunity. Right, right, right. He wouldn't be a WR2! Oh, no! <laughs> no! Live life like it's a romantic comedy, guys. Steve Smith, you're an idiot.